the story of a boy who dreamed of becoming a man, but dreamed up a monster instead. It has hunted you since the summer of 1994, back when we confessed who we were through mixtapes, when every movie at the video store had dirty heads. You were 13 and thought you knew who you were, only the shadow with too many teeth knew you better. It still does, and it won't stop, not until you come home, back to where it all began. Part cosmic horror, part coming-of-age story, Dirty Heads is a terrifying read from the author of House of Size, The Fallen Boys, and A Place for Sinners. Out now. Starting Saturday, 11th of September, Season 2 of Author Question Time on Ross Jeffrey's YouTube channel. Join Bram Stoker Award-nominated author Ross Jeffrey alongside co-hosts T.C. Parker and Kev Harrison as they discuss books, writing and creativity with huge names in horror and dark fiction like Josh Malaman and Alan Baxter, alongside some of the most exciting new voices on the indie scene such as Eric LaRocca, Hayley Piper and Laurel Hightower. Come, bring your questions, join in the conversation. Looking for your next horror writing podcast fix? The This Is Horror podcast for readers, writers, and creators is the ultimate show for writing advice, tips, and a personal look into the lives of all your favorite authors. This is Horror Podcast. Listen in to long-form conversations with some of the best writers and creatives on the planet. Over 400 episodes with masters of horror such as Joe R. Lansdale, Chuck Palahniuk, Josh Mallerman, Joe Hill, Charlene Harris, Craig Clevenger, Ellen Datlow, Kathy Koja, and many more. The This Is Horror Podcast. Listen in at www.thisishorror.com. That's the This Is Horror Podcast for readers, writers, and creators. It was as if the video had unzipped my skin, slunk inside my tapered flesh, and become one with me. From the creator of This Is Horror comes a new nightmare for the digital age, The Girl in the Video by Michael David Wilson. After a teacher receives a weirdly arousing video, his life descends into paranoia and obsession. More videos follow, each containing information no stranger could possibly know. But who's sending them and what do they want? The answers may destroy everything and everyone he loves. The Girl in the Video is the ring meets fatal attraction for the iPhone generation. Available now in paperback, ebook, and audio. Welcome to Dead Headspace, a podcast network that includes Killing Time with Silver Shamrock and Unbearing the Dead, where we exhume classic horror paperbacks for the new generation. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, and today I'm with my co-host, per usual, Brent LaFaro. Say hi, Brennan. Hello, everybody. And we are doing another Spotlights episode. This is the second to last one for this uh, season, and we are talking with Tim Wagoner. Say hi, Tim. Hey, everybody. 
And can you please tell us what you will be reading from today, sir? Well, I'm going to be reading a little bit from my novelization of Halloween Kills that officially came out today. And that's so cool, man. Um, that I just got to ask how... Brandon and I were talking before we started recording a while ago, actually today, and we were talking about when, when you were on, there was a big project you were working on that you couldn't talk about. I don't know if you remember that, but we're... We're kind of curious if that is this book. Probably. <laughs> I can't remember, but yeah, it probably was because the, you know, I'd finished the book and they had announced that there was going to be a novelization. They didn't say I was writing it and then COVID hit and they pushed the movie back a year. And so I was just kind of like, well, I guess I got to keep my mouth shut about it. But I couldn't help but tease people about it because I was so excited. How did that feel? How, was it, Were you just bursting at the seams? No, not too much, but it was it was a lot of fun watching everybody try to guess what was going to be in the movie. Since in general, I knew that was a lot of fun to watch. Brandon, go ahead, buddy. I was just going to say, Tim, Tim was not bursting at the seams because he's a professional. Uh, <laughs> he, he, know, he knows how the game is played. Uh, that's uh, true. You know what? Now that I, I think that, you know, you actually had teased that you had a very exciting novelization coming out, but you weren't allowed to talk about it yet. So I'm going to go ahead and assume that that is that is the one. Um, so how did that come about? Because you you didn't write the one for the 2018. How did you get tapped to write this one? Uh, they just asked. I'd already done three other novelizations for them, you know, for Titan books. And they just asked my agent if I would be interested. And I was like, hell yeah, I'm interested. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, there's, it's a polarization for the reactions. I haven't seen it yet. Just, you know, life gone the way. I still haven't seen the new Candyman. I was supposed to see it when it came out last year, just like Halloween Kills. But I'm bringing that up because, I mean, no matter what happens in either of those films or the next sequels, I don't really care. I'm just happy that they're in, there's new versions of them. And I'm, I'm even happier that there's the original cast, like Tony Todd's and Candyman, and you got Jamie Lee Curtis. And I imagine if Donald Pleasance was still alive, he'd be in it somehow, too. Like, that, that's awesome. Yeah, you know, I don't... I, I don't get like worried about like reinterpretation or remakes. To me, it's just like uh, uh, somebody putting on a play. Like how many Hamlets have there been? And, <laughs> you know what I mean? Point. So it's like, you know, different actors, different directors, different interpretations or whatever. So that doesn't bother me at all. And if there's one I don't like, I don't get fussed about it. <laughs> you know, it's just not one I'll revisit. Plus, you got John Carpenter, his son, and uh, the third, I forget who he is, doing the music for it. Um what was it like seeing the movie before most people? Well, I didn't. Oh, they said you saw it. No, nope. yeah, I have. I've seen it since it came out. But okay, no, gotcha. Yeah, almost never. I mean, like like ninety nine point nine nine percent of the time, when people do a novelization, they do not get to see the movie ahead of time. Oh wow! Um, I got lucky when I did the Kingsman: The Golden Circle novelization because for whatever reasons, the director, you know, told the publishers that I had to see the movie because I had to put everything in that movie in the book. And they did fly me out to see it, but it wasn't much fun because they wouldn't let me take notes with a computer. I just had a notebook and the director said I had to write everything down. So they had to stop the movie every moment or two for me to write. It took like six hours to watch that damn movie. So seeing the theater was weird because it was like super speeded up is what it felt like. It was so strange. Wow. Yeah. So 
I didn't know that. I, I kind of figured, I mean, assumption that the authors that novel do novelizations of the movies watch the film. Uh, nope. We get a script know? and that's it. Oh, okay. So it's based off of the screenplay, the, the script. Okay. Well, we don't sense. even know if it's a final shooting script or draft. <laughs> when I did, did the Kingsman one, my editor and I both got different versions of the script and we didn't know it. Holy so God. when I finished the book and sent it to her, she's like, what the hell is this? <laughs> what I've got. I'm like, what do you mean? And then I, the movie was even different. So when I wrote that one, I just put it together from my three, from the three scripts, like all my favorite things. <laughs> Cause I didn't. Know <laughs> and they were happy with that. So man, how much Liberty do you have to write these? Uh, you know, you don't really know. They don't tell you. Like when I did the, uh, I did a uh, resident evil, the final chapter, the the movie before the final chapter ends in a giant cliffhanger where there's going to be this huge battle with all the characters from the franchise against what looks like thousands of monsters, you know, at the White House. And then the next movie begins with our hero just climbing out a hole in the ground. And that's it. <laughs> there's no bodies around. None of the heroes are around the other ones. And so I wrote 60 pages of like a little mini movie that goes in between. And I thought for sure they were going to cut that out, but they were perfectly happy to leave it. Um so they don't really tell you, so you kind of guess. I mean, you have to add stuff. No script is long enough to be a novel at all. Um, so you just you just do what you can. You know, I kind of you know try to figure out you know how much leeway I think they'll give me. You know, all the the ones I've done, the novelizations have been sequels to movies, so I've already got a feel for kind of how serious they are in the storytelling and how much I can kind of figure. Like I knew I couldn't do like a lot of wacky stuff with with uh, Halloween Kills. And I could probably do more stuff with like Kingsman because it's already lighthearted and, you know, kind of a comedy in a lot of ways. What's it like writing in the playground of John Carpenter? It's, it's fantastic. You know, I watched the first Halloween movie in the theater when it came out. and I've seen all the others. I think I saw the first one. I was like 14 or 15 whenever it came out. Mm. And so now, you know, to be in my late 50s and, and write this book, I mean, I couldn't have imagined that. You know, they would still be making Halloween movies <laughs> this, you know, far into the future or whatever. But, uh, yeah, I could never imagine that I'd be part of it. So just to be part of it in such a small way and to kind of try to inhabit the world and, you know, try my best, to, you know, to bring John Carpenter's, you know, vision to life in this script written by other people, too. But to try to make sure that it still feels like that kind of Halloween, that was awesome. Kind of piggybacking off that question of what was it like to write in John Carpenter's universe? Uh, the way Michael Myers is portrayed, it it's so cinematic. So what how did you approach, you know, writing him in a novel form? Well, the the first part of what I'm gonna read is the prologue from his point of view. So you'll get a chance to see. But what I a couple things I did. One was I went back and looked at John Passarella's novelization to see how he wrote Michael, so that as much as I could, I could make my book feel like it was a continuation of his. Some things had changed probably from the script he was given to the script I had. Like, for example, in his book, The Myers House Burned Down Years Ago, and they turned it into a community park or whatever, like a, like a commemorative park, a memorial park. But in the Halloween Kills, the house is there, and it's been refurbished by new owners. So, you know, there's only so much I can do with stuff like that. I've got to stick to the script. But I wanted to kind of get a sense of how he portrayed Michael. And then um, Dennis Etchison's one of my favorite writers, and he wrote – the novelization under the name Jack Martin. He wrote the novelization to Halloween two and um, Halloween three too, but you know, he wrote Michael. So I went ahead and read how he portrayed Michael too, 
to get a sense of it. What I tried to do is is think, you know, try to like almost like right beside Michael as opposed to inside him uh, and kind of treat him in some ways almost like he's a shark because, you know, they don't think they just do. You know, they kind of react to stimuli and then they do what they do. And I also wanted to get that sense of from the speech that Loomis gives about how, you know, uh, he just talks about how there's pure evil in him and all that cool stuff that he, you know, he just sort of rants about in that first movie. You know, he had the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes and all that stuff. And just kind of trying to to capture that when I was writing Michael. You know, he's a he's a liminal character. He exists in between the real world and the supernatural world. We don't really know which one he falls into. And that's the best thing about him. You know, I think he's it's what sets him apart from all the others that he is a mystery ultimately an enigma and so i tried to capture that too it sounds like you're describing peter benchley's jaws in the first chapter of <laughs> jaws yeah that's brilliant so i okay brennan's question reminded me of what i wanted to ask uh for the follow-up now slashers um I keep hearing, I don't, I don't know, I guess I'm not a, enough of a buff to know if there's one that precedes Psycho, but I've always kind of fallen in the camp of Psycho as like the first slasher on, in cinema. But in my opinion, it there are too many years apart from that and the craze in the 80s to say that Psycho was the one that started that subgenre to blow up. From in my opinion, Halloween really did something to set the slasher genre into gears uh, to, to get the gears in motion. My my question to you is, what's your opinion about that? Do you think Halloween's like the one that kind of pushed it all forward, or do you have any maybe other opinion about that? Well, I think in terms of modern filmmaking, sure. But, you know, I've recently watched a lot of Giallo movies, you know, Italian kind of. There's sort of like combination of mystery, sex and slasher and whatever weird stuff they want to throw in on top of all that. But, you know, watching them, I was like, look at these tropes. I can kind of see, you know, the 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 stalker trope. And sometimes they'll wear a mask even. And and the knife is ubiquitous. And so I. you know, I think that maybe some of that might have influenced some of the horror maker, uh, horror filmmakers at the time, maybe. Mm. Um, and I recently saw on Shudder, I think, or Prime somewhere, there is a movie called the, um, I think it predates Psycho, maybe, maybe by a little bit. But it's called um, uh, The Peeping Tom. And if it's oh, yeah. after Psycho, it, it does like a lot of that point of view thing. Like we see what the killer sees. And it's it's really good. And, um, so, you know, I think that there were like a lot of that stuff was just out there, but I think what Halloween did is it made it conquer, you know, it, con- it took them all and made it like solid mm. so that it had like such a huge impact. It wasn't just a lot of little threads. Then it's like, they all came to, it's like night of the living dead. You know, there's like things that just come together to make this suddenly a brand new archetype, you know, the zombie apocalypse and the zombies that eat people and all that. And I think that's what Halloween did. Um, you know, I just saw some uh, scrolling through Twitter, you know, and they had like a picture. It's Happy Halloween. And it's like, you know, it's it's Jason and it's Freddie and it's Michael and it's Leatherface. And, you know, I mean, if you count like Freddie's face as being kind of like a mask and they're all monster faces, even though some of them are masks or whatever. But, you know, it's like they're all like cousins to each other. And I think Michael's <laughs> the one that really they really started it. That's fair. Uh, wasn't how ha- you're talking about Halloween too? the. Um, novelization wasn't that a zebra book 
I can't remember because I, I didn't get the I don't have the original book. I probably illegally downloaded it. <laughs> <laughs> I paid like five bucks for it on uh, on eBay because the actual book is so you know so expensive now to get. And I was like, you know, I'm just going to pretend I don't have any misgivings about this. I needed to write my own book, so and so I just have a PDF of it. Yeah, I wanted to buy that, but that's that's pretty hard to come by. Brian, you got any more uh, questions? No, I'd love to jump into the reading if you guys are good with it. Yeah. Okay. And so you said I had like, well, how much time do I got? 15 minutes maybe at this point? Or? How, however much you want, man. Honestly, Ron, right. Ronald right. Kelly did like, I think, 40 minutes. Wow. <laughs> All right. I'll just start reading. We'll see. We get okay. to a good stopping point. I'll read the prologue and then chapter one. Um, those people who've seen the movie, one of the things that I can tell you is that it sticks really close to the script. I was really surprised. Because all the other novelizations I've done, I can see differences or a lot of differences. But this one, you know, the script I had is pretty much the movie you saw. It's just that there are character moments that were cut out or kind of streamlined. But, you know, other than that. And so anything else that, you know, you find if you read the book, anything that you see that is like uh, seems like a big scene that's not in the, the movie is probably something I made up. Although I wrote it a year and a half ago, and at this point, I'm not sure what part, parts I made up. But this is the prologue. The other thing I did when I wrote about Michael was that I put all those scenes in italics just to give it a kind of a distancing feeling from the narrative. And I called him the shape, even though I hate that. I've always hated it since the movie came out. He's Michael Myers. But that's the way that in Dennis Etchison's novelization and John Passarella, too, they, they called them the shape. And so I went ahead and used that terminology, too. Right. So this is the prologue. The shape stands motionless at the foot of the stairs, looking up at the three women who have imprisoned him in this trap. Their faces display a range of emotions, anger, disbelief, belief, fear, but most of all, triumph. This is the most prominent on the face of the oldest woman, although when the shape looks at her, he sees a different face, a much younger one, the face of she who will not die. The shape is incapable of feeling anything as he gazes into her eyes, but something stirs inside him, a need for, what, completion? Closure? Perhaps. Or maybe it's simply a need to see the life fade in those eyes, those stubborn, stubborn eyes, to watch them become cold and empty like his. Iron bars separate him from the women, and orange flames flare to life around him. He feels heat on his back, smells smoke in the air, but neither sensation alarms him. They mean no more to him than the pain of the injuries he sustained this night during his hunt. Some prey go down easy, some go down hard, but they all go down in the end, except her. The women leave, but not before she gives him one last look, as if she wants to etch this moment into her memory so she might relive it over and over. The shape understands this desire. Then the women are gone, and the shape stands alone in the basement, still staring up through the bars of his prison and the empty space where those faces had been. He thinks nothing, feels nothing, is nothing. The flames grow hotter, the smoke thicker, and he waits for whatever will come next. Chapter 1. Haddonfield, Haddonfield, Illinois, Halloween night, 2018. Cameron Elam walked through the park in his bare feet. It was late October and the grass was cold, but no way was he going to try to walk home in high heels. He'd only worn them as part of his costume, and he'd taken them off soon after he and Allison had arrived at the dance. Not only did the damn things pinch his feet, but he could barely keep his balance in them. And given how much he'd had to drink tonight, he figured he was unsteady enough as it was. So he carried the shoes. 
Although why he hadn't simply dropped them in the trash before leaving the high school, he couldn't say. It wasn't as if he was ever going to use them again. Maybe carrying them was a small way of punishing himself for having been such an asshole tonight. It wasn't much in the way of penance, but it was a start. He and Allison had gone to the dance dressed as gender-swapped versions of Bonnie and Clyde, the infamous bank-robbing couple from the 1930s. Cam's outfit consisted of a tan beret, brown scarf, yellow short-sleeved cardigan, now beer-stained, brown plaid skirt, lipstick, and those damn heels. Instead of a blonde wig, he decided to go with his own brown shoulder-length curls, and he hadn't shaved his legs, figuring that would make the outfit funnier. The costumes had seemed like a good idea at the time, but once they were at the dance, no one had a clue who he and Allison were supposed to be. The 1930s were ancient history as far as his generation was concerned, practically prehistoric. He walked through a small neighborhood park, oak trees, playground equipment, soccer field, rather than on the side of the street. The last thing he wanted right now was for someone to see him like this. He didn't need people honking their horns and laughing at him as they drove by, shouting through open windows, Hey, baby, looks like you had a rough night. He couldn't believe he'd screwed things up with Allison so badly. Things between them had been going well lately, so much so that she'd even introduced him to her family. Her mom and dad seemed nice enough, for parents that is, but her grandmother was an absolute head case. Still, he had no room to criticize. His dad was pretty messed up, too. That was something he and Allison had in common, nuts growing on the family tree. She hadn't been thrilled about Oscar tagging along with them tonight, though. He could be obnoxious sometimes, well, okay, most times, but she'd put up with him because he was Cam's friend. What she hadn't put up with was Cam's drinking. He'd brought a hip flask with, with him to the dance. It's an accessory, he told her, that's all. When he had, What he hadn't told her was that he'd filled his accessory with gin. Not only had he drunk liberally from it every chance he got, he also had a couple of the beers that Oscar had snuck into the dance. He'd known Allison didn't like it when he drank, and to make matters worse, when she'd gone off to answer a call, most likely from Vicky, his former girlfriend Kim had approached him on the dance floor. They'd spoken for a couple minutes, making small talk. You having a good time? What's the most ridiculous costume you've seen so far? And then, out of nowhere, she'd kissed him. Yeah, he'd kissed her back, but he'd been drunk and hadn't realized what he'd been doing. Or maybe that had just been his excuse. Allison had seen him kiss Kim, and when he tried to explain what had happened and how it hadn't meant anything, not really, they'd argued. He'd ended up snatching her phone out of her hand and dropping it into a bowl of nacho cheese sauce. He hated her phone. Seems like she was always on the damn thing, interrupting their time together. But it had been a stupid, childish thing to do, and he'd instantly regretted it. But before he could apologize, Allison had stormed off, and he'd been too ashamed to go after her right away. When he'd finally worked up his courage and sobered up a little, he'd gone in search of her, but he hadn't been able to find her. She'd left, and he couldn't blame her. He'd looked for Oscar then, but he hadn't been able to find him either. The three of them hadn't driven to the dance, and he hadn't felt like bumming a ride off anyone, didn't want to explain why he was on his own, so he started walking. The night air was cold on his bare arms and legs, and he wished he'd thought to bring a jacket with him to the dance. He shivered and figured he'd probably end up getting a damn cold. God, could this night get any worse? He wished he could call or text Allison, but of course she didn't ever phone. For all he knew, he was still back at the high school, submerged in cheese sauce. He could call Oscar, however. Maybe he knew where Allison was. And even if he didn't, at least he'd listen to Cam's tale of woe. Oscar could be a jerk sometimes, but he was a good guy underneath all the smarminess. He carried his own phone tucked into his skirt. He took it out now and called Oscar's number. He listened as it rang on the other end, and rang and rang. Pick up, pick up, he muttered. Where are you? 
a click, and then Oscar's voice. Hey there, sassy lover. This is Oscar. Voicemail. I'm not able to answer your call right now because I'm standing right behind you. Boo! A beep, and then Cam began speaking, the words coming out in an anxious rush. Oscar, call me when you get this. I messed up with Allison. I gotta find her. Gotta fix it. If you guys are together, if you know where she is, let me know. Okay, bud. Be safe. He disconnected. Damn it. In frustration, he tore the beret off his head and hurled away from as hard as he could. It spun through the air and landed soundlessly in the grass near the high chain link fence that separated the park from the street. He was about to throw the high heels, too, when he saw something lying on the other side of the fence, not far from the curb. There weren't any streetlights close by, but the moon was full tonight. How appropriate was that? And Cam couldn't, could see that the object was human-shaped. At first, he thought it was a scarecrow or a dummy, a Halloween decoration that someone had stolen and left in the street. But then the decoration stirred and let out a soft moan. Christ, it was a person. Hey, you okay? Cam called out nervously. Another moan. Louder this time. Cam didn't think. He tucked his phone back into his skirt, dropped the heels, and ran toward the fence. There wasn't an exit to the street here, so when he reached the fence, he began climbing fast as he could. The metal links were cold on his hands, and they hurt his already aching feet, but he barely registered the discomfort. The fence wasn't all that high, maybe seven, eight feet, and when he reached the top, he swung his bare legs over and dropped. He landed with a jolt on a small strip of grass that lay between the fence and the street and nearly lost his balance and fell. Goddamn gin. He stood, turned, and hurried toward the man, reaching him in three quick strides. The first thing Cam noticed was the blood. It lay on the asphalt near the man's head, inky black in the moonlight. Then he saw the vicious wound on the side of the man's neck, and he understood where all that blood had come from, was still coming from. He knew that if he didn't do something and fast, the man would bleed out within minutes, maybe seconds. He tore the scarf from around his neck and crouched next to the man. When he saw the wound close up, flesh torn and ragged wet meat visible inside, his stomach lurched. He almost vomited, but he gritted his teeth and swallowed. Keep it together, Cam. This guy needs you. I'll get help, he told the man. He raised his voice and shouted, somebody help, help us. He lifted the man's head, wrapped the scarf around his neck, pulled it tight as he dared, eliciting a sharp intake of breath from the man, then tied it. He couldn't use the scarf as a tourniquet, couldn't risk cutting off the flow of blood to the man's head, which meant this makeshift bandage was a temporary solution. This guy needed a paramedic, not some drunk high school kid. Although Cam didn't feel very drunk right now, he felt stone cold sober. His voice echoed in the night, but there was no answer. He looked at the man, registering his features for the first time. He was older than Cam at first thought, in his 50s or 60s, with short gray hair and a high forehead. He wore a dark jacket with a gold badge on the front and the Haddonfield Sheriff's Department emblem stitched onto the shoulder. Cam wasn't a fan of cops, what teenager was, and, he, and he was uncomfortably aware that he still carried his flask and that it wasn't empty. But he told himself to forget about that. Who gave a damn if he got in trouble for underage drinking tonight? A man's life was at stake. Hold on, man. Hold on. Officer, he took a quick glance at the name tag on the man's uniform. Hawkins, take it easy. Come on, please. You got it. Up to this point, the man's eyes had been closed as if he were hovering on the brink of unconsciousness. But now his eyes flew open and his hands lunged toward Cam. He flinched, thinking the man was attacking him in his delirium. But instead, he grabbed hold of Cam's sweater with surprising strength and pulled him closer. His eyes were wide and wild, and when he spoke, his voice was a harsh rasp. He must die. He needs to die. Then all the strength drained out of the man, and he let go of Cam's sweater. He lay back, face pale, but he didn't close his eyes, and while his breathing was rough, it remained steady. The man wasn't ready to check out yet. He was a tough one. 
Cam had no idea what the man was talking about, who needed to die, but right now it didn't matter. He grabbed his phone and called 911. And while Cam frantically explained to the operator what was happening, Officer Frank Hawkins gazed up at the full moon, which looked too much like an expressionless white mask to him just then, and remembered another night, another Halloween, long ago. This is Haddonfield, Chapter 2, Haddonfield, Illinois, Halloween night, 1978. Frank Hawkins, 25 years old, ran through shadows cast by tall, leafless trees, revolver in his right hand, flashlight in his left, feet pounding, heart racing, lungs heaving. When he joined the sheriff's department a few months ago, he hadn't anticipated running hell-bent for leather through quiet neighborhoods, desperately searching for a madman, yet here he was. And he sure as hell hadn't expected that madman to be little Mikey Myers, all grown up and returned to Haddonfield to shed more blood. So far, Michael had killed three people during his homecoming, including Sheriff Brackett's teenage daughter, and the entire department was out in force, determined to make sure Michael didn't claim any more lives. There weren't any streetlights in this part of town. The residents here liked it dark and peaceful at night, wanted to preserve a cozy small-town atmosphere. Streetlights with their cold, garish illumination were for cities. Impersonal, crime-ridden, dangerous places. Not little old Haddonfield. And while some people had a habit of leaving the front porch lights on at night, most were off now, a signal to any late trick-or-treaters that the homeowner's candy supplies had been depleted. No one had their back porch lights on, though, which was why Hawkins searched their yards. The darkness made a perfect hiding place for things that preferred to go about their work unseen, things like Michael Myers. He kept his flashlight off, though. He didn't want to give away his location to Michael, didn't want him to flee or attack. Hawkins had been 10, only four years older than Michael, when the boy had, for some twisted, unfathomable reason, slaughtered his teenage sister Judith on Halloween night in 1963. Michael had been institutionalized ever since, his family home long abandoned. Hawkins had no idea what had happened to Michael's parents. One day they were simply gone, their house empty. People gossiped, gossiped about what had happened to them. Some said they'd had another child and left town to start their family anew, but no one seemed to actually know. Hawkins figured that remaining in town, and especially in that house, had been too painful for Michael's parents, and they'd gone somewhere they could, if not forget, at least not be constantly reminded of the tragedy that had struck their family. In the 15 years since Michael had killed Judith, Haddonfield's children had turned him into folklore, telling stories about Michael, saying his family had kept him locked in the attic where they tormented and tortured him until he'd been driven insane, or that he'd been possessed by a demon that had forced him to commit murder, a demon that still remained in the Myers house and which would possess any child foolish enough to cross its, cross its threshold. Hawkins wondered what stories children would tell after this night was done. He stopped running as much to catch his breath as to listen and see if he heard anything suspicious. At first there was nothing, but then he heard the sound of a vehicle racing down a street a couple blocks over. He turned and saw the blue lights of a sheriff's department cruiser flickering between the dark silhouettes of houses as the officer hauled ass down the street. Had Michael been spotted somewhere else? God, he hoped so. He wasn't afraid of encountering the lunatic, but it wasn't something he wanted either. He'd never fired his weapon on the job and never had cause to even draw the damn thing, and while he hoped his training would take over if and when the time came to take a shot at someone, the truth was he didn't know if he could do it, and he wasn't in a hurry to find out. Besides, rumor was that Michael had already been shot six times as a matter of fact, point fucking blank. But that had to be bullshit. No one could take that many rounds to the chest and live, let alone go on the run. 
If Michael had been shot, which Hawkins seriously doubted, he was most likely lying dead in some alley or ditch, and his body wouldn't be found until the sun rose. Where were the other deputies? This was a lot of area for one man to search, so he called for backup a while ago. And while he didn't want to admit it, he was spooked out here by himself. He could use the reassurance of having more experienced officers with him. But so far, he'd seen no sign of them. He'd finished with this street, and he considered heading back to where they'd parked the cruiser. Maybe the other deputies he'd ridden with had finished searching and regrouped back at the car. Maybe they'd gotten word that Michael had been located somewhere else. But his job was to continue searching until he received orders to stop, so that's what he'd do. Besides, what if Michael was lurking somewhere around here? Hawkins wouldn't be able to live with himself if someone died because he'd gotten scared. He decided to head west, and he jogged toward an alley between a pair of two-story houses, intending to use it as a shortcut. But he only made it a few yards before he froze. A tall, almost robotic figure was crossing the alley 50 yards in front of him. The man had just appeared as if he'd emerged from the shadows, and he moved silent as a ghost, his feet making no sound. It was difficult to make out much detail from this distance, but Hawkins saw the man wore dark clothes, as if he was garbed in shadow itself, and his face was an eerie, spectral white. If Hawkins hadn't known better, he might have thought the man was nothing but a disembodied head floating serenely through the night air. He knew at once that he had found Michael Myers, or perhaps Michael had found him. Instinctively, he dropped his flashlight and fell into a shooting stance, feet apart, revolver raised, left hand gripping his right wrist. Stop right there! His voice came out strained, and he winced to hear himself. He thought he sounded like a little boy playing police officer, but he didn't tremble, and his gun hand held steady. He didn't expect the man, Michael, to obey his less-than-authoritative-sounding command, but he stopped walking at once. He stood there for a second, still as a statue, before turning to face Hawkins. Then, again moving like a machine instead of a creature formed of flesh and blood, Michael started walking toward him. Hawkins couldn't tell if Michael was carrying a weapon, but he had a feeling the man didn't need one to be a threat. Michael was a weapon all by himself. Hawkins spoke again, his voice whip-cracked strong this time. Stop! Haddonfield Sharp Department. Michael kept coming, moving with a deliberate mechanical stride. As he drew closer, Hawkins could make out the features on his, on his mask. He'd seen it before, one like it in a display window of a hardware store downtown. But on Michael's face, the mask's features seemed to have taken on a strange life. They didn't move, of course, but it looked as if the rubber had sealed itself to Michael's flesh, forming a second layer of ivory skin. So lifelike were the features that he wouldn't have been surprised to see the eyes blink, the nostrils flare, the lips tighten. Speaking of eyes, a black line ran from the left one down to his chin like the track of an ebon tear. Was that blood? Had one of his eyes been injured? Hawkins looked to see if there were any bullet wounds on Michael's chest, but the fabric of his coveralls was too dark for him to tell in this line. Michael continued toward Hawkins, pace relentless, arms held tight at his side, hands open, fingers stiff and curled like claws. Hawkins was overwhelmed by sudden atavistic fear, a profound sense of wrongness, as if the thing coming for him wasn't only inhuman, it was something that couldn't, shouldn't exist. Terror in human form, darkness solidified, death, the great nothing itself, given shape. Hawkins had been trained to give warning before discharging his weapon, but he was so frightened that he acted without thinking. He squeezed the revolver's trigger once, twice, three times in rapid succession. The gun roared and bucked in his hand, and the flash of its muzzle flare, so bright in the night's blackness, temporarily blinded him. He blinked furiously, expecting to feel Michael's hands grab hold of him any second, but he felt nothing. When his vision began to clear, he saw that Michael was gone. He ran to the spot where he judged Michael had been standing, looked left, right, turned back the way he'd come. Nothing. 
it was as if Michael had returned to the shadows that had birthed him. Obviously, all of Hawkins' rounds had missed his target, perhaps not by much, but as the old saying went, a miss was as good as a mile. Hawkins squatted to examine the ground. He retrieved his flashlight, turned it on, and shined its beam outward. The alley wasn't paved, and he saw depressions in the moist dirt. Boot prints. Proof that Michael was human after all. Hawkins reached down with his right hand and ran his fingers over one of the prints. They came away wet and sticky with blood. Michael's blood. The man could bleed, and what could bleed could die. Hawkins, you okay? Hawkins' ears was, were ringing from the sound of his weapon discharging, and the voice sounded muffled, far away. Still, it startled him, and he sprang to his feet, revolver raised, ready to defend himself. Three men ran toward him, all carrying lit flashlights and wearing sheriff's department uniforms and brown jackets. They, too, had their guns out, but they carried them at their sides, and Hawkins, embarrassed, quickly lowered his weapon. The three men weren't that much older than him. Tobias and Sullivan were in their 30s, and McCabe was around the same age as Hawkins. As veterans of the sheriff's department, they delighted in busting the rookies' balls, but Hawkins was glad to see them now. Deputy McCabe, the one who'd asked if he was okay, reached him first, but Sullivan and Tobias were close behind. The men might be veterans of the sheriff's department, but right now they all looked as scared as he was. Did you see him? Tobias demanded. Where did he go? Now that the encounter with Michael was over, Hawkins lost control of his emotions. He began to tremble with fear, and when he spoke, he practically yelled, Where have you guys been? I called for backup ten minutes ago. Easy, rookie, Sullivan said, an edge of irritation in his voice. Slow dance in the big city, McCabe added. Hawkins was unfamiliar with the phrase, but he got the gist of it. He took a deep breath, let it out, and forced himself to speak calmly. He crossed right here, saw him from 50 yards away, then he just disappeared. The three older deputies exchanged looks. Loomis said he shot him multiple times in the chest, McCabe said. So it's more than a rumor, Hawkins thought, and he shuddered. No one could survive that, Tobias said dismissively. He shined the flashlight on the ground. Hey, footprints. Always late to the chase, Tobias, Hawkins said. He knew Tobias would be angry with him later, but right now he didn't care. Michael's out there somewhere and they, shut up, McCabe said. Then he shushed them. Shh. Without speaking, the four deputies moved to stand back to back and directed their flashlight beams outward. They saw nothing. A siren wailed in the distance. He just disappeared, Hawkins repeated. His voice held more awe than fear now. McCabe began barking orders. Sullivan, you and Tobias search Chestnut south to the bypass. Hawkins and I will track Market Street to Lampkin. We'll catch him. Catch him, Hawkins said in disbelief. You kidding me? That asshole just killed Sheriff Brackett's daughter, Annie. You see Michael Myers, you shoot him, got it? Hawkins knew it wasn't his place to give orders, especially when they countermanded McCabe's, but he couldn't help it. He'd seen Michael and felt the vast emptiness that was shaped like a man. They hadn't. Sullivan and Tobias shared an uncomfortable look, then they turned to McCabe. Go, McCabe said, and the two men started jogging down the alley. When they were out of earshot, McCabe turned to Hawkins. Jesus, Frank, you can't be barking orders like that. Our badge says protect and serve, not shoot to kill. Embarrassed, Hawkins looked away from McCabe. A moment later, McCabe began walking, and Hawkins fell in line beside him. I used to know him, you know, McCabe said, his voice subdued. Michael, when we were kids. This surprised Hawkins. McCabe had never said anything about this before. He was one of those weirdo freaks who'd pull the wings off butterflies, that kind of thing, Hawkins asked. McCabe shook his head. Not that I ever saw. He was just, he killed his sister when he was six years old, Hawkins put in. He immediately felt stupid for saying this. Everyone in town knew this fact, and McCabe surely did. But Hawkins was nervous, and he felt as if he had to say something. If McCabe was irritated by Hawkins' interruption, he gave no sign. Yeah, 
My mom used to make me go to his house to play. Sometimes Michael would just stare at his sister's bedroom window. I always wondered what he was looking at. And then one day, he just snapped. Hawkins tried to imagine Michael, an ordinary little boy, standing at Judith's window, gazing outward, saying, what? He was looking at Haddonfield, Hawkins said, a simple town where nothing exciting ever happened. Until now. They continued their hunt in silence. All right. That's the, there's a scene break and it goes on from there, but that's pretty good. I'll say. I thought that was great. Yeah. Very nice job, Tim. Thank you for sharing that with us. You're welcome. So one of the things I had to do, my wife's a former ENT. So anytime, like there was like somebody wounded, I had to run and ask her. So if somebody only had a scarf and this guy was bleeding from this terrible wound in his neck, how would you really stop the blood? Because sometimes the script would just be like, they just press it here gently. And it's like, no, what do you do? <laughs> and so a lot of the wounds in there, if you uh, all the stuff about how to treat them come from my wife, <laughs> not from the oh, script. Wow. That's very useful. Yeah. That's, that's, a, that's a great tool. <laughs> yeah, she helps a lot with that kind of stuff. That's really neat. I, I heard a similar story with Christopher Lee, a Lord of the Rings, that they were trying to train him how to get hit when he's playing uh, – ceremony and um he was like no this is how it happens because he has experience with that um so i don't know random fact but that's really interesting because yeah you can't you can't know what you don't know and having someone like that super helpful did she um read the script your your manuscript at all no she had no idea why i was asking these questions she's used to it it wasn't until we watched the movie together she's like oh that's why you asked about the throat i'm like yeah does she ever impart any interesting facts about like if it doesn't look realistic yeah sure all the time um and she'll she'll tell me when it does like some movies she'll be like she's so impressed because they look real but other times they don't and honestly i think they don't look real on purpose because how else can you kind of divorce yourself from it you know have kind of a buffer to enjoy it as entertainment you know i think that's why the blood is often so red and squirts so far and like slasher movies and stuff just so that it looked we know it's fake and that gives us permission yeah. to enjoy it, you know oh for sure yeah the over-the-top stuff is really funny you need you need comedy and horror you just need a few moments to breathe um tim i thought that was great and you said today oh. as of the recording uh october 26 2021 is the release date the publishing date yeah in in the the u.s i guess it's going to be like another week or so in the uk and for some reason, the audiobook dropped a week early. I have no clue why, but <laughs> so it's all available now for people to check out whatever whatever they like ebook, print book, audiobook. Well, happy book birthday. Uh, Brent, absolutely, man. Brent, do you have anything to add? Uh, no, but uh, Tim, besides, you know, we're very excited about your release day. Uh, is there anything upcoming you'd like to plug while we're here? Um, I, I did a tie in for. Um, a board game, a card game called Zombie Side: The Invader, which is like space zombies. Not really like oh. alien, aliens turn zombies, but humans fight them. Sounds um, fun. Yeah, it was fun to write. It's a lot of fun. Um, and so that's come. It's called Planet Havoc, and that thing's coming out, I think, early April. And I should sometime this year have a follow up to my How to Write Horror book, Writing in the Dark, which is a workbook full of exercises. It's just called the Writing in the Dark workbook. I'm not sure when it's coming out. And then in July, my next Flame Tree novel's coming out. It's called We Will Rise. And instead of a zombie apocalypse, it's a ghost apocalypse. 
ghosts start up they appear all over the world and just start attacking people <laughs> speaking of which right in the dark congratulations on the award man oh yeah thank you yeah for um anyone that hasn't t- uh, picked up that book yet would you mind just quickly talking about it for potential readers Oh, sure. You know, writing the dark is kind of a summation of my like 30 years as a writer and the things I've learned about writing horror and the things I've learned from teaching people and doing workshops and writing blog entries about it. So it's full of, you know, advice on how to to write horror. But, you know, when it comes to creative writing education, because I'm also a college professor, teach writing classes, the worst thing you can do is only hear from one person. So Mm -hmm. one of the things I wanted to do was have little mini interviews with as many writers and editors and publishers as I could on how to write good horror. So there's many interviews with probably close to a hundred people like sprinkled throughout. Um, and it's full of exercises as well and other resources too. Absolutely. Good stuff. Um, want to ask where can people follow you? Oh, uh, you just go to my website, timwagoner.com and it has links to all my social media. My uh, email address is there. If you want to drop me a line, uh, link to my YouTube channel where I post videos about writing horror. So that's just like one stop shopping, you know. <laughs> website. Um, and do you have any final thoughts, anything that you want people to be aware of, or maybe any other books that you want to plug? Because you, man, you, you're one of those authors that has like three or four books out a year, it seems like. Yeah, you know, sometimes it's weird because they stack up. I mean, it, I've got like five books that I've written at this point that aren't out yet. And so (laughs) to me, it's so weird when they finally come out because they're like, you know, I'm so far away from them. But yeah, um, I mean, my uh, just saw yesterday, somebody was kind enough on there, you know, some spooky reads for Halloween to mention my uh, flame tree book, Your Turn to Suffer, which is about a woman who was approached by a weird cult and said to uh, confess and atone or suffer. And she has no clue what they want her to confess and what they think she did. And then she's just involved in, a nightmarish world of cult weirdness and other dimensional weirdness. <laughs> so maybe people check that one out. Excellent stuff. Um, Brennan, any final thoughts, sir? Now throughout there, I'm about halfway through your turn to suffer right now. And it's, you're right. It's a, it's a damn ride. And it's, <laughs> um, you know, what I love about a Tim Wagoner book is if you think you know where it's going, you're you're wrong. <laughs> and I think I'm that's a tantamount that. example of it. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad. Thanks for reading it. I appreciate it. My final thoughts are thanks for coming back again, Tim, and especially reading from Halloween Kills. That's that, that really did remind me of the first chapter of Jaws. Um, it, just describing a machine as opposed to a human. That's so... I've, I've never thought of it like that. That's creepy. <laughs> because there's real people like that. Yeah, maybe not Maybe not survive all those wounds, but <laughs> I hope not anyway. Yeah. But yeah, in terms of the way that their minds work, sure. I mean, that's what – I think that's another thing that people like about slashers. It's They seem like they could exist in the real world, you yeah. know, as, as opposed to like – I don't know how many sharks like Jaws would show up in New England and start munching on people. I mean, it's possible, you know, so that's scary too. But vampires and werewolves, not so much. I, I love them, but, you know, you, they don't they don't feed into that realistic fear, you know, so. Pretty sure they'd be on, like, TikTok or something by now. It's <laughs> <laughs> true. Listeners, the next episode is this Monday. That is episode 126 with Christopher Golden. Stay tuned for that. Thank you for joining us. Check out those books that we mentioned by Tim. Go to his website to check out the entire bibliography that he has. And stay tuned for his upcoming books. 
As always, thank you for choosing us. You have many choices in podcasts. You are now leaving Deadhead Space.